Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. You're about to hear a show called Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. This is our second season. We've got Daya Lithwick, one of the great constitutional law journalists in America, an expert on how ancient Rome handled these things. That's somebody different. A guy who's going to explain betting markets and how they look as something like an impeachment. And then, you know, our usual nonsense, factoids. Oh, we've got an essay by Bill Usman. It's just chock full of goodies. So it's coming up right after the news. I'm Colin McEnroe. This is a show called Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, which we invented, well, back when when there was another damn impeachment, but it was a previous one. And we did a whole season of that, mainly because we didn't want to get preempted from our usual show that we do every day. That's more than you probably want to know about that. But anyway, that's why we're doing this now. And we try to tell you things about the impeachment that maybe you haven't been told so far. It's a little complicated, though. We're working with all kinds of other time problems as well. So as I'm recording this, the Trump defense team is doing its Friday presentation. So I know that I either am or am not supposed to say reportedly and fight a lot. But I'll just have to sort of let that play out as it will. So, joining us first is frequent guest Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. We're recording this particular conversation on, see, I told you this was complicated, on Thursday morning before the last day of the House Manager's presentation. Dahlia, I guess I'm going to ask you an open-ended question to begin with. We should say that because of the peculiar construction of this impeachment trial, the opening statements are kind of the case. I mean, unless they change their mind and decide to call witnesses or something. So how has it struck you so far? I thought yesterday was devastating. I thought Tuesday was devastating. It it seems to me, I I think you're right, Colin. I, I would go further and say, I think that 13 minute video that Jamie Raskin open with was the entirety of the case. In some sense, you know, you can parse it out, which we've now seen a day of every tweet, every speech fomenting, you know, mistrust, every single threat. But I think that video really very effectively captured the the nexus between what Trump has been doing for months and months and months, what happened on January 6th, And the ways that kind of call and response vibe where the ways that what he was saying was being received in exactly the ways that he intended for it to be received. And so if the issue is, you know, how do we prove he actually incited this? I I think that video kind of open and shut case. 
they also are in a very airtight sounding way, I think, establishing a chain. And the chain, I think, is basically this guy said these things to those people. Now let's go look at what those people did right after he said those things to him. And then, Dahlia, I sensed last night after the dinner break that the next major shift is, and now let's look at what the original guy did after he realized what people were doing as a result of his words. So in other words, it seems to me that to kind of pack away at the idea of Trump being innocent of knowing what could possibly have happened as a result of his words is substantially undermined by his indifference to the violence. I always thought that was almost the strongest part of the case because, and let's start with the stipulation that this isn't a criminal incitement. I mean, this is, doesn't have to reach levels of criminal incitement and we don't necessarily need to look at First Amendment ideas around what constitutes incitement. But it always seemed like the slightly hinky part here was going to be able to prove that what he said on January 6th led to the actual insurrection. And, you know, you're already hearing the response to that from Trump's lawyers, which is, oh, you know, this was locked and loaded months in advance. He had nothing to do with it. So even though I think that's not plausible, and it was certainly debunked yesterday when they, I think, broadened out the argument to say, oh, no, no, this was locked and loaded because he triggered it, you know, in the Mm -hmm. summer and the months after he started to claim the election would be stolen. But all that notwithstanding, I think that the really rock solid argument here is once he knew what was happening, once it was amply clear that Mike Pence was in physical mortal danger and he did nothing. And we now know based on reporting from Wednesday night that Donald Trump knew that Mike Pence had to be evacuated and still sent out a tweet attacking Mike Pence, this stuff, the the negligence and the deliberate callousness when he could have stopped it is almost more powerful than the incitement stuff. Yeah, it seems also, though, uh, that the House managers, even though there are ways in which the fact that this doesn't precisely map onto criminal jurisprudence or criminal procedure can be kind of a disadvantage, there are major advantages. I mean, nobody ever really can object to the direction that they're going in. For example, you know, as part of what you were talking about, laying the groundwork for the idea that the seeds of January 6th were planted by Trump and others over a period of months, and that he is very much part and parcel of that. They get into the whole thing of the campaign bus in Texas being surrounded by yahoos who seem to be trying to run it off the road. I can imagine maybe in a more traditional courtroom, the defense lawyers objecting and saying, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? But there there could be no such thing here, right? Right. I mean, there's certainly no objections. There's also, look, I mean, fundamentally, this was the big shift for me, Colin, and it really helped. I talked on my podcast to Dan Goldman, who had been the impeachment lawyer in the House for 1.0. And one of the things he really clarified for me, because I think It's so hard because this whole proceeding lives in this interstitial, not quite politics, not quite law. And and he said to me, look, Daya, all of these people are witnesses and victims. Like They can't be the jurors, right? Like you've moved to strike on the first day. And by the same token, kind of cutting in the other direction, we had a vote on the first night that this thing is 
perfectly constitutional. It is off the table. The body has voted that this can go forward and it's constitutional. And yet you're hearing all the Republicans who plan to vote to acquit still claiming they're going to vote on an issue that's been done and dusted. So because there's no objections, there's no rulings, there's no, as you're saying, prohibition on like weird hearsay and extraneous evidence, there's no problem with the fact that Pat Leahy is both presiding and is going to be a juror. I mean, it's all so completely antithetical to how we think about how a trial would normally go. And there are no rulings on anything. Nothing is ruled on. And so there is a way in which I think we just get very, very tripped up if we think of this as a lawyerly procedural search for truth. Because all of the mechanisms that exist in a real trial to get you there are essentially sidelined here. I guess the point for me is that to the extent that we think that the objective of a trial is to get to some kind of knowable truth. There's no way to do that if there are no fundamentally truth-seeking processes in place. And so what you're going to get is very much like you did last time, this split screen where one side is arguing one truth and the other side is arguing another, and there's no mechanism to force them to clash. Right. I mean, I'm always frustrated by processes in which there is no testimony taken under oath. It just has a way of clarifying things. You know, being a Connecticut person and having lived through the hearings on John Rowland, I know that the House Select Committee did take testimony under oath and we understood a lot more about what he had done. But then he got a federal plea where there was no trial and there was a whole record that didn't get created there. And the problem with that, Dahlia, because these things cross into politics is that people can and will frame Trump and his misdeeds, his crimes and misdemeanors or lack thereof, any way they want to going forward and for any purpose. And there's less of a a record of sworn testimony to contradict them with. That's exactly right. I've been compulsively rereading Hannah Arendt through this trial as I'm listening And this idea of kind of manufactured realities and what you need to do to unlash huge constituencies from, you know, falsity is it's so urgent. It's so essential. I think it's why Jamie Raskin has been so doggedly trying to do this despite personal tragedy. You know, it's it's why these impeachment managers have taken this so seriously in the face of political headwinds that say, you know, let's move on. Nobody cares. Let's do this in an hour. There's no point. And I think that it's an attempt to construct a record and a reality that is immutable. It doesn't matter what, how it's framed, this happened. And I heard so much of that yesterday in the manager's presentations where they kept saying things like, no, this really happened. Like, not only did this happen, it happened to you, you know, John Cornyn sitting right there. It happened to you. And and there's a way in which it's just an attempt, again, in the face of certain acquittal to establish that you know it happened because you were in the room and you can dress it up however you want to, but let the record reflect, you know, Perry Mason, this occurred. And it's very strange because, again, it has nothing to do with testing two different theories. It just has to do with letting them rest next to each other. It seems like part of the goal at this point may be to put 
the Trump loyalist senators into the role of the kind of political equivalent of the OJ jury, that at the end, we know there are going to be quite a few votes not to convict. And and it seems like putting on such a not only airtight, but kind of enthralling case is almost meant to say, really, you want to be those guys who didn't vote to convict after seeing this kind of evidence? It is almost an OJ parallel in that way. I love that. I mean, I keep thinking it's so interesting, these pieces. I think the Washington Post had a really interesting piece this morning about this fissure between the Republicans who are saying, hey, they're putting on a good case, but it's immaterial. And some of them say it's immaterial because it's unconstitutional, right? That's Ted Cruz. And some of them say it's immaterial because it wasn't incitement. There's no way to tag this to the president. But then there's this whole other bunch of Republicans like Lindsey Graham, who are just like, no, Nancy Pelosi started that, you know, whatever crackpot thing he's saying. So there's a way in which forcing them back on their heels and forcing them to cloak themselves in some reason or other why even if they saw it with their own eyes, even if they were huddled under their desks, even if we now see footage of Mitt Romney pretty much probably escaping, you know, bodily harm, the way that they have to reconstruct the proceedings so that it didn't happen or if it happened, there's nothing they can do about it. I think that's the thing, trying to get them on the record as either, you know, well, same as last time, he did bad stuff, but nothing we can do about it. He's probably learned his lesson all the way to Nancy Pelosi did it. And I think that'll be a useful sort when the final voting happens. So one thing we also know, and you've written about this, is that public opinion is heavily weighted towards conviction, towards doing something about this. But the process itself is constructed by putting it into the Senate you know, the framers kind of did set up a process that might not be responsive to popular will. So is that just something we have to live with? Well, the reason I wrote it this way was because I think all of us who are trying to think about Joe Biden's other priorities, right, the economy, COVID, reinstating America's stature in the world, need to figure out what the point is of going forward and why we don't just do a pro forma 15 minute trial and get it over with since acquittal is certain. And I think a lot of the reasons you and I have just discussed, we're doing it to create a record, to put Republicans on record, to tell a story and to lay down a marker and all that is important. But I think the other thing that I was pushing for in that piece was to help people understand what minority rule looks like and that If you live in a world with a malapportioned Senate, which is desperately malapportioned in terms of misrepresenting popular will, and if you live in a world where malapportioned senators and electoral college elected presidents get to then seat Supreme Court justices who are hard at work, (laughs) blessing political gerrymanders, blessing vote suppression, on record now, en masse, saying that vote by mail might be somehow impermissible, then you are just headlong running into more vote suppression and less representative democracy. And so I wanted people to somehow tie this proceeding and how frustrating it is that you have 50 senators that represent much fewer than that proportion of the population who are essentially signaling that they have seen the polling too. They know that almost 60% of Americans want to see a conviction. 
but they're not beholden to that. <laughs> they're completely, not only are they not beholden, but some of them are not even bothering to come up with a pretext for why they're going to vote to acquit. And so if we can connect how badly representative democracy has gone off the rails and how unrepresentative the Senate is, then maybe that frustration when you watch TV and you say, how can they not care that the majority of Americans would like to see a reckoning here? Take that frustration and channel it into HR1 and other attempts to make representative democracy representative again. You know, the, the Republican senators in some cases are probably looking at other polls, the polls that tell them what would happen to them if they did vote to convict. And those polls in their states, those polls, there's a new survey out from Vox and Data for Progress, 69% of Republicans said they'd be less likely to vote for a political candidate in their state if that person found Trump guilty in the trial. So that's a poll that they'll look at and think, well, yeah, so I could be primaried over this thing. It's not worth it. And and Bill Cassidy, right, who's just getting whacked back home, all he did was say, dude, I heard the arguments and I voted that it was constitutional. He hasn't even made a decision on the merits and he's looking at what could be the end of his career. So absolutely, those polls are not trivial. So there was an odd moment at the end of Wednesday night. Mike Lee from Utah suddenly stood up at the end of what appeared to be the end of proceedings and and said, you know, statements were falsely attributed to me. This all involves this kind of comical episode during all of this stuff where both Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were trying to call another senator. Senator Tuberville, and they kept calling Mike Lee's number instead. And Mike Lee would have to, well, in the case of Trump, walk his phone over to Tuberville so that Trump could talk to Tuberville, presumably about slowing down this whole vote certification process. And so what did you make? Was Mike Lee just doing a distraction last night or was he genuinely concerned about how he would be portrayed in the official record? I guess the charitable version goes back to your very first question, Colin, which is he felt like they were putting words in his mouth. He was being quoted and that the words were not correct, right? So he felt, I guess this is what a lawyer does, right? They stand up and say, you know, that's hearsay. They're putting into the record words that did not, in fact, emanate from my mouth. I was there and I didn't say that. So that's the the sort of formal legalistic answer. But of course, yeah, the real problem is that he is now an interested party in this very, I think, important conversation about when Donald Trump knew that Mike Pence had been evaluated and was at risk of life and limb, right? And here's Mike Lee. There's this, you're right, there's this kind of three stooges, like, I'm not going to stop the election. You stop the election. Here, give it to, you know, Tuberville. Like, there's a level of crazy that abstracts away from how material it is <laughs> Mike Lee is in on these conversations and is overhearing them. And so there's this part of it that is this formalistic legal, like, I didn't say that. And, you know, yes, my aide went on CNN, you know, the next night and reported this verbatim, but don't put words in my mouth. But I think there is this really urgent question of what did Mike Lee know and when did he know it? And in again, in any real trial, we would call Mike Lee and he would be with us and he would tell us what he saw. But Mike Lee doesn't want to tell us what he saw. He wants kind of to have it both ways. He he doesn't want to be in the record. He doesn't also 
he also doesn't want to tell us what really happened. And so then we're back to that fuzzy netherworld we talked about where this is not bound by rules of hearsay. It's not bound by rules of evidence and testimony. It's just Mike Lee importing, I think, procedural reasons that he wants to be left out of this into this big political question about, wait, did you know that Donald Trump was tweeting threats at Mike Pence, even as Mike Pence had been evacuated from the chamber? That that matters, I would think. Mike Lee should testify. So that was Dahlia Lithwick, writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Before we go to a break, here's another edition of Factoids with Kyone Wolf. What is Factoids with Kyone Wolf? Well, it's this. Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, the breakout star of the second day, is technically a congressional delegate from the Virgin Islands and cannot vote from the floor of the House. She was not allowed to vote for the impeachment she's now prosecuting. Plaskett attended the elite Choate Rosemary Hall School in Connecticut under the program A Better Chance. She credits the school with inspiring her to public service through the Bible verse, To whom much is given, much is required. Spider-Man, whose slogan is, With great power comes great responsibility, did not attend Choate Rosemary Hall. Other graduates of that school include JFK and Adlai Stevenson, neither of whom was ever impeached. Also, the actor James Whitmore, who starred in one-man shows about Harry Truman and Teddy Roosevelt, neither of whom was impeached. Bruce Castor, the lawyer who opened the Trump defense on Monday, began his remarks by saying, I am the lead prosecutor. That is basically the opposite of what he is. Castor was a prosecutor years ago in Pennsylvania where he declined to try Bill Cosby for the very offense which much later resulted in a trial and conviction. Castor said there was insufficient evidence. One of Trump's other defense lawyers, Michael T. Vanderveen, sued Trump last year over Trump's efforts to discredit mail voting. Vanderveen is famous in Philadelphia for his TV commercials, which provide a number to call if you slip and fall on a snowy walkway. While the U.S. Constitution was being written, Warren Hastings, former governor general of India, was impeached in England, despite no longer holding office. The trial was spread out over seven years. Jane Austen and her family took a keen interest. Hastings may have fathered one of Jane's cousins out of wedlock. Twitter announced this week that Trump's ban is permanent, even if he runs for president in 2024. I'm Kyone Wolf. This has been Factoids. This is Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show. I'm Colin McEnroe. Earlier in the show, you heard Dahlia Lithwick and me talking about the whole idea of even if you cannot convict Trump through impeachment, you can create a damning record. You create a record in which so many things are spelled out in a way that probably won't go away easily. You put the Trump loyalist senators in kind of the position of the OJ jury voting to acquit when there's no sensible person who would do that. 
But, you know, this is, well, this is sort of a system that's operating from a limited palette of choices. So we thought we would look back to an earlier time when there were other ways of dealing with situations like this. And it turns out that when the ancient Romans DM'd you, they weren't sending you a private message on Twitter. They were doing something quite different. Robin Walsh is an assistant professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Miami. Her new book is The Origins of Early Christian Literature, Contextualizing the New Testament Within Greco-Roman Literary Culture. So I think we have to begin with that other DM, Damnatio Memoriae. Explain what this is. Well, it really comes down to this idea that you can condemn certain people. So this is where you get the idea of the damnatio. So in ancient Rome, specifically, we're thinking about the empire here. There were times when after someone of notability died, and so let's think about the emperors in, in this case, you would have a choice in the Roman Senate. You could either what was called give them apotheosis, which is elevate them to a divine status where they would receive public cult and basically be seen as a god. Or you could damnatio them, which means that they would be denied these things and that they would have some kind of social erasure, more or less. So in the case of damnatio, it's not a term from antiquity. It's a term in modernity that scholars use to identify the different processes by which someone's memory was more or less erased. And there were a number of different strategies that uh, were involved, but the ones that are important for us would be things like removing their names from public statues, removing their names from inscriptions, or destroying any documents that mentioned them, or destroying things like statues. You could either recarve a face so that it looked like somebody else. The Roman emperors were very good about having certain signals, like signature hairstyles. So you could just kind of change the bangs of a Caligula and turn them into an Augustus pretty quickly. So you could change the statues, bury statues, remove the head, stamp out the face. You would get rid of any coinage that had their name on it. And then on the less extreme side of the spectrum, you might do things like ask their family to change their name. And so the idea there is that you are breaking those social ties. So that's more or less what we're thinking about when we talk about Damnatio Memoriae. Right. There's a certain overreach, I would think, in assuming that you can control the historical record. I mean, we sometimes refer to this process more globally as historical erasure. You can see it uh, happening in various periods of Russian history, too. So-and-so never existed. There's no trace of this person ever having existed. But, you know, as you point out, there are a lot of unintended consequences when you do something like that, including, you know, mothballing a whole bunch of Caligula <laughs> busts only to have them be better preserved than anything else. Yeah. So the idea when we look at some of the decrees that indicate that someone's being damnatio, that's not the ancient term. That's what um, I call it to make it simple. Yeah. But they would say that what we want to do is create a consequence that's greater than death. And so they didn't have a long view here. So by doing things like removing from the built environment any reference to the person, that seemed to fit the bill to get rid of the memory. But what they didn't realize, to your point, is that when you bury a statue in the ground, when you throw it into the Tiber or throw it down a sewer or warehouse it, like you say, put it in mothballs, they didn't realize that archaeologists hundreds, thousands of years later were going to unbury these things from their various hiding spots. And not only would they be more well-preserved than something that had been out in the elements for hundreds of years, but they're actually more rarefied now because everything else had been destroyed. 
Right. And I think this is a problem. This is an eternal problem, right? If you want to erase or somehow or other suppress the memory of somebody whom you regard as a terrible villain, the other thing that you've probably tried to do is call attention to what a terrible villain they were. And these things, I mean, you can see it right now with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's, you know, as a result of all kinds of journalism about her and moves to strip her of her committees, you know, she's really, really famous and she's able to raise a lot of money from people yeah. who like her and miserable high school Latin students like me know more about Catiline than we do a lot of, about a lot of other people who, you know, were perhaps less toxic than Catiline because we had to translate these incredibly long Ciceronian orations against him, right? When you, when you go after somebody, you call attention to them. Well, you're hitting on two things there. The first is that historians, ancient and modern, it's really tempting to amplify the bad guy. And so when you have these figures that have been uh, this attempt at erasure that is really not, to your point, possible, hmm. there, there's almost this open space there where you can attribute to them almost anything because all you know now is that they're depraved and they weren't worthy of the apotheosis. And so what we see from historians like Suetonius or Tacitus, some of these, these ancient writers, is that you know, Nero's responsible for everything. <laughs> Caligula's responsible for you know, naming his horse a senator. Anything that they could do to denigrate this person further, using their imagination often, was fair game. And what we see with some of these public figures is this idea that people like Ted Cruz, that Holly, that Taylor Green, they are trying to fill a space, a void that is being created by something like this historical erasure, which is aspirational. It's really not possible in the way that the totalizing way that we see even historically somebody like the ancient Romans trying to accomplish. And so when you create that power vacuum, someone's going to step into the fray. We had that in antiquity generations after Nero had died. We have little Nero messiahs, they're called, stepping up, saying, I'm the reincarnation of Nero, or trying to even just look like Nero to imitate his speech or his dress the way that they imagined it to try to, again, step into that fray and, and take the mantle by the disgraced figure. And kind of to that point, but maybe in, in a longer view, I mean, history is a, a moving target. So, I mean, even Caligula's got kind of a revisionist biography out over the last five or six years. We reinterpret people all the time. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine the biography of President Trump 50 years from now, which paints him in a more gilded way. But I, I suppose we have to accept that that, that can happen. Yeah, we usually do go back and try to look, you know, are there, you change the, the relief, you know, are there ways in which something like, I, I guarantee you generations from now, something like Trump's foreign policy will be reviewed, you know, he didn't get us into a new war for the first time in generations, that doesn't make him a good guy. It's just another facet. So you can always change that scope and see if there's another approach or facet to a particular leader's agenda or what they've brought to the table in terms of their authority and in terms of their, let's call it rule in this case, you can always change that scope. But I think what's interesting and what I advocate for is making sure that we can try to get as sober a view of history as we can. And that's why I appreciate the work of historians like Heather Cox Richardson, who has been doing this Letters to an American series every single day. She just tries to break down what has happened in this day in, for example, the Trump presidency or during this impeachment trial with every citation that she can possibly find to give us some kind of scope that's in real time 
so that when we do generations from now look back and try to change that view or try to change that narrowing of our perspective on a particular aspect of somebody's tenure in office, we will have as much evidence as we possibly can marshal behind us to have that sober view of history. Right. I love the idea that Substack is the new Suetonius. But I mean, I, <laughs> I, start, I start my day with Heather Cox Richardson, too. She's certainly won me over to that point of view. So as we look at this, I mean, I, maybe the other thing worth noting is that it could be argued that the Romans figured out more options. Like we've got sort of criminal processes and impeachment. They had stuff like exile in some cases also. I, I don't know how often this happened with public officials, but there were people who were sort of had the opportunity to commit protracted suicides. Petronius, we know, took his own life just by slitting his wrists and then tying him back up again, hanging out with his friends, drinking some wine, saying some things, breaking some stuff he didn't want Nero to have, uh, let a little bit more blood out, and doing this this very kind of public thing. So it did seem whether it was that or being banished, ideally to someplace pretty nice, there were things that they could do that other societies don't do. Well, yes, there are certain de facto ways to handle the situation. And you could make an argument that maybe Mar-a-Lago is a little bit like like an exile, which is something <laughs> that I, I attempted to make that connection when I've written about this, making the comparison elsewhere. But yes, you had sort of a range of social pressure that you could apply and people would intuit what needed to be done. And in some cases, voluntary suicide might be uh, preferable to an execution, at least it's within your power. I always think of the Godfather. But even something like, you know, being strongly encouraged to change your name. But the idea is that at certain points, the social dynamics in the social network needs to be reconfigured in a way that you're no longer under the auspices of whoever we're trying to move past in terms of a new order. Uh, or a new power structure. But yes, exile was absolutely an option. Suicide was an option. Name change and just sort of self-banishment was an option. So those things do stand. I, you know, Robin, I would have said that Mar-a-Lago is Trump's Domus Aurea, the Nero <laughs> mansion that's currently being excavated as part of an archaeological project. But maybe it'll be his Capri also. Well, <laughs> yeah, actually, the Domus Aurea is underneath what we call the Coliseum. So maybe we'll have a new football stadium in Mar-a-Lago. That would be our... <laughs> Our next step. That was Robin Walsh, an assistant professor of the New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Miami. Her new book is The Origins of Early Christian Literature, Contextualizing the New Testament Within Greco-Roman Literary Culture. So this is an area, this area where we're about to walk into that I admit to being somewhat undereducated about, although because I listen to the 538 podcast a lot, I'll often hear Nate Silver talk about the betting markets. And the betting markets, it turns out, can mean many different things. But the truth is, people no longer bet merely on sporting events and the other kinds of things that they might have bet about in the past. That's been the case for quite some time. And so, yes, they will place bets on impeachment or lack thereof, or conviction, we should say, or lack thereof. Joining us to explain more about that, much more than I just inadequately did, is Sasha Paruk, lead oddsmaker and editor at Sports Betting Dime. So we should, uh, I guess, maybe begin with where things are right now. It's going to be hard for anybody to make a lot of money by betting on the acquittal of Donald Trump in this impeachment trial. Explain why that is. Well, basically, that is because you have to wager an enormous amount of money just to make 
basically $100. So the way that the odds looked the last time they were posted, which was on February 8th, the day before the trial started, the average odds that you could find for no conviction were minus 2165. And so what that means for people who aren't versed in betting parlance is you have to bet $2,165 in order to win $100 if indeed Trump is acquitted. Yeah, it's too bad there aren't like, you know, exactas and perfectas and stuff. I mean, it's hard to make any money on acquittal unless you can put it together with something else. But that's that may work in horse racing, maybe not so much here. It really depends on what you are parlaying. <laughs> Basically, anytime you're putting more than one bet together, you will have the opportunity to, to make a greater payout. But obviously, you have to be uh, confident that both legs of your parlay are going to hit because if you lose any single leg and you can put more than two together, but if any single bet does not win, your entire parlay loses. So yeah, there would be sort of exciting opportunities to put together acquittal with individual senators voting to acquit. But what you're probably going to find with any sports book that's offering political betting like this is that you might not be allowed to parlay those two things together. This happens in sports a lot, too, where they will not let you parlay two bets on the same event, say the same football game. Some sites will let you parlay sort of the outcome on the point spread. So, you know, Tampa Bay plus three in the Super Bowl with the game total, which was, I think, about uh, 55 and a half points. But other sites will not let you do that. And the reason for that is that when you're sort of putting two bets on the same event, you can correlate your parlays. And basically that means if one of your bets hits, it's likely that your other bet is going to as well because the sort of the same things are going to be happening. So if Trump is going to be acquitted, it's highly likely that Mitch McConnell is going to vote to acquit. And so you'll find that a lot of sports books don't let you put that type of bet together because basically winning one means that the other is going to necessarily win and they don't want to give you more money for that. So we should say all of those things have been worked out and maybe we can get to it. But yes, it's also pretty hard to make any money betting that Mitt Romney will vote to convict, that kind of thing. So first of all, I think for a lot of people, this is an abstraction. I mean, we should you should explain people really do this. And how do they do this? I mean, if I wanted to put a bet on Susan Collins, how would I even do that? The only way to do that at the moment is through a betting exchange. There are no sports books basically in the world right now who are taking wagers on either impeachment or individual senators voting to either acquit or impeach. But there is a betting exchange called predicted.org where basically the individual bettors are exchanging shares in yes and no. And so you can buy a yes share. Yes, Susan Collins will vote to convict at a certain price, basically whatever someone is willing to sell it as. And so it's basically the equivalent of a stock exchange instead of the sports book putting juice on the odds. So, you know, in a pick em game, you have to bet $110 to win 100. And that's how the sports book ensures its profit. The exchange itself will just take a commission. And there is a lot of betting going on, as I'm understanding it, unpredicted. I mean, not the kind of betting that would have gone on, say, in the 2020 election, but but people are betting, correct? Oh, yes, tons. They post the number of shares traded for each individual proposition. And so the votes to convict is one of their most popular markets, and it has nearly 19 million shares traded. So that's 19 million people. 
So I want to go back to the sports betting books for a second, because one of the things that I don't correctly understand, I think, is when, in fact, they create probabilities on this. In other words, the numbers that would make it so difficult to make any money on a Trump acquittal. Does that reflect your or people, someone with your kind of expertise, your understanding of what's going to happen? Or is it also highly influenced by where the money is going? In other words, you you would want to have tough odds. You'd want to have tough differentials in, in a place where people are betting an awful lot of money. The short answer is that it's both. When odds first open, the odds makers will basically be doing the math themselves behind the scenes saying, how likely do we think each outcome is? And then you can convert a probability to the odds that you want to put on it. And then once the odds are open for a while and bettors are starting to wager on one side or the other, the odds will shift based on, as you said, where the money is going. And for a sports book, they do that not necessarily because they think one outcome is becoming more likely, but in order to protect themselves against loss. Because if they have considerably more money on one side at a certain set of odds and that happens to be the outcome, then they are going to lose money. But if they shift the odds, it encourages betting on the other side. And as long as they have that sort of 10% juice, it's pretty easy for them to shift the odds in a way that they will ensure themselves a profit. I mean, as I understand it anyway, you could see that in the 2020 election, right? So much money was going to Trump that after a while, the odds kind of drifted away from other kinds of measures of probability, whether we're talking about polling or anything else. It just, if you, if the only thing you knew about were betting markets, you'd think Trump was going to win. Exactly. He got as short as minus 500 at some sites, which is an 83.3% implied probability. So basically, that means in order for your bet to be sort of like a long term winner, in order for you as a better to be profitable, your bet has to win at least 84% of the time if you're betting at those odds. And it was just wildly different to anything that the polls were saying. And it was people sort of being fooled by the moment, um, by the fact that certain votes were being counted before others and not recognizing what was still to come. Well, I just want to get, uh, while we have time here, some of the fun and playful stuff about this are what are called prop bets. Explain to people what a prop bet is. In, in sports betting, it's anything other than the outcome of the game. So with the Super Bowl, it's the sort of king of props. You have every, everything from what color Gatorade is going to be poured on the winning coach to which players are going to score touchdowns. And they can be extremely related to the sport of football or sort of completely auxiliary. And it basically, you can translate that into any sporting event, any political event. And so with something like the election, you could think of the main event as who's going to win the election. And then you could have prop bets surrounding that, winning individual states, total number of votes, it's basically just a way for betters to sort of classify things as either the main event itself or something related to it. So if I had a bet with a friend of mine about whether Josh Hawley was going to put his feet up on a desk during the impeachment proceedings, uh, I, I could have won some money. But you guys aren't doing too much of that with this. I mean, obviously, there can be prop bets to which you have alluded on which senators vote which ways and stuff like that. But to me, that seems so material to the outcome that I, I kind of don't. There aren't a lot of crazy who falls asleep first prop bets floating around, I assume. No, not not here. And I, I can't totally explain why. I think it has something to do with sports picks being reluctant to put odds on any of this at this point in time. The betting exchanges, like predicted, tend to shy away from that because a lot of the times when you're dealing with these wild props that sports books post, 
they're not doing that necessarily to rake in the cash. They're doing it to attract interest, to attract new people to wagering. And that's not something that a site like Predictit or other betting exchanges are necessarily as interested in. So, I mean, I guess maybe if they were going to pour Gatorade on Jamie Raskin at the end of this or something, we, we, we might have more to, to talk about. So let me just ask you one last question, Sasha Perug. So this is, I think, from a certain point of view, a, a less interesting situation or scenario than many of the ones that you deal with. I mean, the outcome seems foretold. It's difficult to sort of see. You can't do, you can't do parlays. Does that, I don't know, what does that do to your mood as an odds maker? I mean, would you rather be dealing with a highly complex situation or would you rather be dealing with this situation where there's not too much that can go wrong as long as you balance out the heavy betting against the odds that you set? To be honest, I like to have a little bit of both in my life. <laughs> You're right. This is not this is a highly predictable situation. And if Trump ends up being found guilty, it's going to take everyone by surprise. And so as an odds maker, I don't really feel like I'm earning my keep when I'm assessing the probability around events like these. But at the same point in time, it it makes some of my days easier. But no, you're right. The sort of the fun comes into it uh, when you when you're dealing with things that are more unpredictable, something like the 2020 election heading into that the odds had swung wildly from June until election day, where Trump was favored sort of as short as minus 175. And then heading into election day, Biden was around minus 200. So the implied probability saying he's got about a 66.7% chance to win. And assessing whether the odd, whether the swing in those odds was justified, I had a very, a very fun time with. All right. Well, fun, of course, being a double-edged sword in all things. Can I throw one caveat at the end here? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we love anyone comments. who is considering getting into betting on politics or sports. Please budget it out. Please do not bet more than you can afford to lose. That was Sasha Peruk, lead odds maker and editor at Sports Betting Dime. As we close the show this week, we have an essay on how we got here in the first place. It's from Bill Usman, a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Child sex slaves in the basement of a pizza parlor. A secret cabal of communist cannibals in the Democrat Party. School shootings that you only thought happened. A stolen election engineered by a dead Venezuelan dictator. Jewish space lasers igniting forest fires. And of course, the main attraction of this so-nice-we-had-to-try-it-twice spectacle. Joseph R. Biden sitting in the Oval Office, while the rightful resident is Donald J. Trump. But because uh, he got six million more votes than what they expected, which is close to 80 million, and this will all come out, Biden only got 68 million, if that. Or at least that's what that pillow guy says he can prove. So let's go to the Capitol, because... We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. These sorts of claims have become a regular feature of our political discourse. But let's not make the mistake of thinking this is something brand new. Measured in political years, it wasn't that long ago that Sarah Palin was telling us that Barack Obama is someone who sees America as imperfect enough to pal around with terrorists who targeted their own country. And Fox News speculated that he and Michelle were exchanging a fist bump, a pound, a terrorist fist jab. And let's remember that an influential essay 
called The Paranoid Style in American Politics, was published in 1964, not 2021. The historian Richard Hofstadter looked around and saw a resurgent and unsettling tendency, one that had long antecedents for sure, but had taken on a new life with the rise of McCarthyism and far-right organizations like the John Birch Society. Hofstadter identified American political life as an arena for uncommonly angry minds. He wrote, I call it the paranoid style simply because no other word adequately evokes the qualities of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy that I have in mind. Noting that the feeling of persecution is central, Hofstadter also realized that political paranoids believe themselves to be righteous and patriotic warriors. That sure sounds like 2021, when about 75% of Republican voters believe Trump won the election, and almost 200 Republican representatives are standing by their woman, the most visible QAnon-flavored member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But I also keep thinking back to another political analyst, Ray Davies of the Kinks, who told us, there's a red under my bed and there's a little green man in my head. And he said, you're not going crazy. You're just a bit sad because there's a man in you, gnawing you, tearing you into two. conspiracy-driven, white supremacist, paranoid rage that we saw on full display at the Capitol on January 6th isn't totally new on the American scene. What is new? The technology that delivers the delusions directly to our pockets every hour of the day, wherever we go, whatever we're doing. Imagine if Joseph McCarthy had had Twitter and a smartphone. It's enough to make reasonable people lose sleep over the forecast for democracy. And it's not just the reasonable among us who are despairing. When paranoia takes over a system, everyone is affected. That's the nature of systems. Hofstadter concluded his essay with these sobering words. We are all sufferers from history, but the paranoid is a double sufferer since he is afflicted not only by the real world with the rest of us, but by his fantasies as well. There's a red under my bed And there's a little green man in my head And said you're not going crazy You're just a bit sad Cause there's a man in you So that was our friend Bill Usman, a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University, and that's our show. I'm Colin McEnroe. This episode was produced, as always, by Betsy Kaplan and Jonathan McPants with Cat Pastor. Thanks this week to Gene Amatruda and to Kion Wolf. And so here's the thing. <laughs>
We don't really know what's going to happen next. But probably the impeachment is going to be over any minute. But what we know is that if the impeachment ends quite soon, we will do one more episode of Pardon Me next week, in which I think Tyrion Lannister will explain who's going to run the country from now on. So you'll hear that on Connecticut Public Radio on Saturday at noon, and you'll be able to find it on all your favorite podcast places in perpetuity. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. 